Well, good morning. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who once wrote that he pitied the atheist because when they saw a sunset, they had no one to thank. And uh, what a beautiful worship this morning. Amen. Just praise God. Well, two announcements before uh, we begin our time in God's Word this morning. First of all, if you were here last week, you know that we were joined by some folks from Africa New Life Ministries in Rwanda. And it was a fantastic weekend. And they had set up a booth outside with 40 pictures. And their prayer was that by the time we were done on Sunday, that all 40 of those young men and women would have sponsors here from Wayside Chapel. And I want to say that after the 915 service, there was about six left. And we ended up sponsoring, as far as I know, over 70 kids from Africa New Life. So praise God. A lot of lives were changed through that, and so we get to praise God in the midst of that. And then secondly, for those of y'all wondering, Roger will be back in the pulpit next week, and we will be beginning a long series in the book of Acts, okay? It's going to be wonderful. I can't wait. I'm excited, but that will kick off next Sunday in Acts 1, and I hope you will join us as we journey through that. Well, sometime uh, a year, year and a half ago or so, I loaded up my family. It was time to head out on vacation. We had packed the car. The family's in the van. They're kind of waiting for me. And right before I get in the car, I look down the street and I see about four individuals coming my way. And as I look a little bit closer and I focus in, I realize and I know those are Jehovah's Witnesses. And they're coming to witness, so I've got to make a choice. Do I just get in the car and do I drive off or do I go engage? And I was feeling kind of feisty. I had been doing a lot of my reading. And so so I head towards them and and we, we meet right kind of outside our house, okay? And if you know Jehovah's Witnesses, you know that we have some major doctrinal differences with them. And the main doctrinal difference we have is they are not Trinitarian. They do not believe in the Trinity. They do not affirm the deity of Christ. They do not affirm the deity of the Spirit. And that is something that I do. And so I engage them right there. We exchange pleasantries. Hey, how are you doing? But I know time is limited, so I drive in. (laughs) And I give what I thought was a robust defense of the deity of Christ from His Word. And as I am giving this defense, their countenance changes... They clearly become uncomfortable and they begin to just kind of walk away. And as they walk away, one of the, one of the people there was a high school student who I found out played football at Lee. And as he's walking away, I said, hey, I used to coach football. As if that gives me any authority whatsoever in spiritual things. I said, read Colossians 1, read John 1, read Hebrews 1. And they disappeared. And I got in the car with Victoria feeling pretty good about myself. And I looked over at her and I said, well, that went pretty well. And she said, you think? I think that you just turned them completely off. I don't think they were impressed whatsoever with your argument. And things got pretty quiet there in the car. (laughs) Not because I was mad, but because I was embarrassed. Because she was absolutely right. 
I had hoped to engage these people and that the Lord might reveal Christ through me. But instead, I think I revealed the depravity of man more clearly. And the thing is, is that we have strong disagreements with Jehovah's Witnesses. But the reality is that we have strong disagreements with a lot of people. And it's not just people who come around knocking on our doors. It's people who reside and come inside our doors. It may be a spouse. It may be a parent. It may be a child. It may be a sibling. It may be a friend. It may be a classmate or a coworker. My best friend from college who I had lunch with a few months ago, a guy who I'd worked at camp with, gone to Bible study after Bible study with, who no longer believes in the gospel. It's people all around us. And when it comes to what we believe about Jesus Christ and what that means for our life, as I mentioned, there's no shortage of people who dis- disagree. Barna Research did a survey a few years back, and they asked what percentage of, of American Adults have what's determined as a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview. And if for somebody to have a biblical worldview, they said they had to affirm these six truths. Number one, that absolute morality and truth exist. Number two, that the Bible is totally accurate in what it teaches. Number three, that Satan is real, not merely symbolic. Number four, that a person cannot earn their way into heaven by trying to be good. Number five, that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. And number six, that God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today. Anyone who held all of those beliefs was said to have a biblical worldview. And I know that many of you out there were going, amen, 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 amen. And when they got done with the survey, their results found that 9% of American adults, 9, possessed a biblical worldview. When they found ones who claimed to be born again, who described themselves as born again, It was 19%. That's it. I was, and this is not just happening in America, obviously. I was listening to Ravi Zacharias, listening to a podcast, and he talked about an interaction he had at the University of Oxford. And he's there in Oxford, and he's doing a seminar, and he's giving a defense of the gospel and the historicity of Christ and of, and of absolute morality. And this one, and they have a Q&A at the end, and this one student comes up, And he says, Mr. Zacharias, and this is an articulate guy, this is an Oxford guy, and he says, Mr. Zacharias, I do not believe in objective moral truth. There is no such thing. And Zacharias looks at the guy, and this is a little rough, but he says, son, what if I had a one-year-old up here, a one-year-old baby, and we killed him in front of your eyes? He says, what would you say? And this is what this Oxford-educated gentleman said. He says, I would not like that, but I'm not sure I can say that it is wrong. Folks, that is the world we reside in. This is the time that we are living in. And the question then becomes, how in the world do we engage a world filled with people who see things so differently 
than we do. So differently. How are we to deal, deal with those who not only oppose our beliefs, but oppose us who hold them? What are the rules of engagement when it comes to dealing with these folks according to Scripture? And this is what I want to spend a few minutes talking about this morning. And the reason why I want to talk about it is because we have to engage our world. We have to. For one, it's impossible not to from a practical standpoint. We live in the world. So we have got to engage the world. And secondly, we engage the world because it is part of our spiritual calling. And yet I think if we were to be honest with ourselves... We as individuals and we as the Christian church have oftentimes failed in this area of engagement. We have failed. And what we have done is we have either reduced the truth of God or we have removed the love of God from our engagement. And what those responses do is at times we have been guilty of distorting the very thing and the very person we claim to represent. And that is heartbreaking. A guy that I love to read, a guy named Russell Moore, he says something that I just love, and this is what he says. He says, it's not good enough to just speak the words of Jesus. We must speak them with his accent as well. We must speak them with his accent as well. So how do we do this? How do we respond? What are the rules of engagement for us as believers in this world. Well, thankfully, God has told us how to respond. And so if you'll turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy, starting in chapter 2 and verse 22, we're going to look at what Scripture has to say to us. And as you turn there, much like I did last week when we looked at a passage in 1 Peter, let me just give you a one-minute overview of this wonderful letter written from the Apostle Paul to his spiritual son, Timothy. This is most likely the last letter Paul ever writes. We know it's the last inspired letter that we have in the canon of Scripture, but this is probably it. This is Paul's swan song. Okay, He's in prison. He's about to be beheaded. And he writes to his beloved disciple, Timothy, who is residing in Ephesus, and he's the, the senior pastor at First Baptist Ephesus at the time. Okay, And things are tough for Timothy. He's being opposed by people within the church. He's being opposed by people outside the church. And not only that, from what we can tell, Timothy, who was a young guy, was also somewhat timid. This is what Paul tells Timothy in chapter 1. He says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of, of the Lord or of me, his prisoner. And so throughout this letter, Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, you fight, son. You hang in there. You be faithful. You hold on to the truth. You suffer with me. Be faithful, Timothy. Fight the good fight. And that brings us to our section we're going to look at this morning in chapter 2, where after Paul has told Timothy, hey, here's what you are to fight against. And then he's told Timothy, here's why you fight against it. Starting in verse 22, he shows us how. He says, these are your marching orders of how to fight against opposition where you're at. So let's take a look at it. Starting in verse 22, Paul writes, 
Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So here's one, what I want to do this morning. In this passage, I want to pull out three principles that I see that Paul gives us in terms of how to engage a world that is opposed to the gospel. And these three principles become our rules of engagement. Rule number one is to pursue holiness. Pursue holiness. Starting in verse 22, this is what Paul writes. Flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Paul tells Timothy to run away from youthful lust and to pursue righteousness, to pursue holiness. Now, why is that important? What does that have to do with engaging an unbelieving world? Well, for starters, and we spoke about this last week, this is one of the reasons why God came to save. So that we might proclaim the excellencies of Him who calls out of darkness into His marvelous light. That we would proclaim and display God's goodness and His holiness through our lives. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 through 16, Peter writes, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves and also all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So we pursue holiness because God commands it and because He purposed it in salvation. And we pursue holiness because we know without it, our credibility is hindered. Our credibility is hindered. There is nothing that our society likes more. And there's nothing that probably does a greater damage to the cause of Christ than for believers who proclaim holiness and purity to be living in unchecked sin. I remember when I was in college, I went to a church where the pastor there was an amazing preacher. He was amazing. I'd never heard anybody like him. I grew up in an Episcopal church. I was used to 15-minute homilies. And this guy taught the word. And I was, I just loved it. And I would go to church and I would sit up in the front row and I would have my, my pen and my notes and my stacks. And I mean, I was ready to roll. I had never heard a guy teach like this guy. And I remember I was at the movie theaters just right down the road here in town and I got a call from my buddy. He's like, hey, Michael, I need to talk to you. So I answered the call and I talked to him and he says, hey, uh, this gentleman, he, uh, he's been having an affair and he's, he's resigned. He's resigning from the church. And I think I was on a date, actually. And I walked outside, and I started bawling. I was just sobbing, standing outside this movie theater, because I could not believe it. And I returned to school the next week, and the elders had called a meeting of the church. So everybody was in the sanctuary, and the elders were explaining everything that had gone on. And you just heard people sobbing throughout the church. 
It was, it was surreal. It was like a funeral. And I remember sitting there thinking about what had just transpired and promising myself that I would never forget what was happening. And it really taught me some things. For one, it taught me just how susceptible we all are to sin. We are never too spiritual for moral failure. And that goes from the person in the pulpit to the person in the pew. No one is immune. No one is untouchable. Secondly, I saw how painful sin was. And look, I, I, I understood that. This was not a news flash, but I, this was unique. And I saw how it hurt his family. I saw how it hurt his kids. I saw what it did to the church. I saw what it did to the community. I saw what it did to his witness. You see, we never sin in a vacuum. We never just sin against ourselves. That's not the way it works. Sin has many tentacles and many levels and many layers and it touches so many things and it's so destructive and painful and I saw it. Thirdly, I saw what the pursuit of youthful lust can do to one's witness. I worked with a bunch of non-believers at the time and they had a field day with it. They had a field day. That church I've been telling them to come to, one of my heroes, Christian pastor, moral failure. All Christians are hypocrites. They're no different. And please hear me. I'm not just bagging on this guy. I, I love that guy. And I understand that none of us are perfect. And I understand that all of us, this side of heaven, will not reach perfection until we enter into glory. We are trophies of God's grace. We are objects of His mercy. We are recipients of undeserved and unending love. That is 100% true. And we proclaim it from the rooftops that we are saved by grace and grace alone. But if we think that just because we are saved by grace and that everybody struggles, therefore sin is not that big of a deal, we've lost our minds. We've lost our minds. And you cannot condone sin and you cannot explain away of lack of holiness by just saying, well, you know, everybody struggles. That's just not good enough. Because sin is a big deal. It's such a big deal that Christ came to defeat it. And it cost him his life. It's such a big deal that it destroys lives. It destroys marriages. It destroys families. It destroys churches. It destroys communities. It destroys societies. It destroys witnesses. And so we are to flee from it. Flee from it and pursue personal holiness. So number one, pursue holiness. Number two, practice humility. Something we're not always good at. Practice humility. Look what Paul says in verse 23. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. We are to engage our world with personal holiness, and we are to engage our world while practicing humility. And if you really stop and think about it, spiritual pride is insane. It's insane. Pride is insane for the believer. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. Not of yourselves is the gift of God. Now as a result of works so that no man, no one may boast. There's no room for bragging. 
humility and gratitude squeeze out pride in the household of God. There's no room for it. We're to follow in the footsteps of our Savior who left His throne in heaven, took on flesh, not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. We are to practice humility. And then Paul now in these three verses lays out five ways in which humility expresses itself when coming into contact with those who oppose us. Five ways. The first way, humility is expressed by not being quarrelsome. By not being quarrelsome. Paul tells Timothy, fight the good fight. But then he says, but Timothy, not every fight is good. Fight the good fight, but understand that not every fight is good. Don't go around like a heat-seeking missile looking for conflict. Don't go around looking to debate stuff that either is just speculation or doesn't matter in the first place. Avoid that stuff. Now hear me, this does not mean we act weak. This does not mean we avoid conflict. This does not mean we are not people of confrontation. You cannot proclaim the good news of Christ and you cannot live that out and avoid conflict and avoid confrontation. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying avoid the conflict and the confrontation that is unworthy of your time and your energy. And so all of us need to think about, are there things that work me up that I get engaged in and that I argue about that don't really matter? That don't really matter. We are to speak the words of Jesus with his accent. And in our humility, we are not to be people who are quarrelsome. Secondly, we are to be kind to all. Kind to all. This is a Greek word here that was used to describe medicines that were soothing. Isn't that great? It's like an aloe vera Christian. (laughs) Kindness that is soothing. And we don't just offer this kindness to those who agree with us. (laughs) We don't do that. That's not what Christians do. This is not only for other believers. It says kind to all. Romans 2.4 writes, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, but oftentimes it is the kindness of the people of God that He uses as the instrument that brings people to repentance. It is the kindness of God that brings repentance, but He loves to use kindness through the people of God to make that happen. We are to be people of kindness. As one theologian wrote, kindness has converted more sinners than zeal, eloquence, or learning combined. Kindness has. The humble servant of the Lord is kind to all. So we practice humility by not being quarrelsome. We practice humility by showing kindness to all. We practice humility by being able to teach others. To teach others. The bondservant of Christ must be able to communicate his truth. And this requires humility because that doesn't just come through osmosis. You don't just sleep on your bed and put your Bible on your face and wake up with the book of Isaiah memorized. Okay, it doesn't work that way. We humbly submit to God and invest time in his word because we know that we are needing him. And that we are desperate for him and we want our lives to be filled with his truth and transform us. This does not mean we need to be able to sit down and write a systematic theology, but it does mean that we should be able to communicate the gospel 
or we then are like a soldier without a weapon or a surgeon without a scalpel, unable to complete the mission for which we were assigned. We must be people of humility that are able to teach others. Fourthly, we're to be patient when wronged. This may be the hardest of them all. Amen? Because nothing awakens our flesh quite like the feeling of injustice. Before I came on staff here, I was a teacher and a coach for eight years. And I coached football. And when you coach football, you get called all kinds of names. Some endearing. Others not as much. Right? And so that was my experience. But I remember the first time that I got an email after a sermon that was negative. And it's not been my only one. But this was my first one, so it was special. It's in a shadow box. I'm just kidding. So I'm sitting in my bedroom. It's late at night. I read this email, and shall I say, it was not complimentary. And shall I say, I was a little bit irritated by the whole thing. And so my fleshly reaction was that I wanted to write this person back, and so I did. And then I put it in the drafts. <laughs> Praise God. And I went to sleep. And I woke up the next morning, and I called Roger in his office, and I said, hey, I told him what happened. And he said, let me tell you, that's just, welcome to my world. <laughs> he goes, that's just part of the job description. But my flesh was, initially, was like a middle school scene where someone calls a student a loser. And what does that student do? (laughs) No, you're a loser. And that's what my flesh wanted to do. But who does that glorify? Who does that glorify when we respond that way? David Jeremiah tells the story, you may have heard it before, of um, Hudson Taylor, the great missionary who was in China. And Taylor's dressed in Chinese, you know, his Chinese outfit. And he's standing by a river. He's waiting for the boatman to come pick him up and take him across the river. And while he's standing there, a, a wealthy Chinese man comes up behind him. And he thinks that Taylor is Chinese. And this is a wealthy guy. And he's, he's, he's ready to go. And he takes Taylor and he throws him out of the way into the mud. And Taylor lands in the mud. And he says, basically, I wanted to get up and punch him in the face. He said, but the Lord wouldn't let me. So he gets up and the rich Chinese man sees Taylor and says, recognizes that he's an American and that he's not Chinese. And he says, you are a foreigner and you did not strike back. And Taylor looks at him and he says, sir, this is my boat. But I will take you wherever you want to go. And they get in the boat together and Taylor shares the gospel with him. And before they arrive to the other side, the man receives Christ as his Savior. How do we respond when we are wronged? Is our response on how to return the favor or is it on how to display the unmerited favor we have in Christ Jesus And I'll be honest with you, I imagine for many people here, the greatest public sermon you will ever give, the greatest sermon you will ever give will not come from behind a pulpit, but it will come from your life as you walk through some episode in your life of great injustice or of great suffering. 
That'll be the most powerful sermon that we ever preach is when we walk through our life publicly through something of, of great injustice or great suffering. Because injustice and suffering typically elicit bitterness and hatred. But through the Spirit of God, the believer can respond with forgiveness and faith for we know that this is our temporary home. The bondservant of Christ is to be patient when wronged. I, uh, this is just a quick aside, but I wanted to share it because it's really special to me. I got to work with a college student the last couple of years. I actually coached him, and about two years ago, he got really sick. And just awful deal. And I was thinking about him this week as I was going through this text because I remember it was about a year ago today that I was sitting at the hospital with his parents. And the doctor comes and says, hey, can I talk to y'all? And we go into this room together, and the doctor sits down, and he looks at us, and he says, I want you to know that your son's not going to survive the night. He's not going to make it. And so you may want to go say goodbye. And so we go and we pray and just mourn. And he makes it through the night. And he makes it through the next week. And he makes it through the month. And he goes four months in the hospital, three months in the hospital without ever going outside. One setback after another. Positive, positive, faith, positive. Not why me. He was wronged by doctors. And doctors are human. But there were mistakes. He could have cried out to God and say, why are you doing this to me? But he hung in there. And he hung in there. And he hung in there. And he is going to be at our 11 o'clock service today. And it'll be the first time he's come to church. He's been able to come to church in two years. But God has been so faithful. And his display of faith and Matthew walking through that for two years has been unbelievable. And it's so much power, more powerful than anything I could ever say from behind a pulpit. It's just remarkable. So how you handle injustice and how you handle suffering will be the greatest witness of your faith that you will have. So avoid quarreling. Show kindness to all. Be able to teach. Show patience when wronged. And finally, correct with gentleness. Correct with gentleness. Anyone who knows me knows that I love theology. And I love apologetics. And I love a great intellectual argument for Christ. Many of my heroes are apologists. And I know 1 Peter 3.15 where it says, Always be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you. But while we tend to focus on the argument, what I've found out is Christ and God tells us to focus on our attitude. We focus on argument. They, God says focus on attitude. We enter in with an argument of hostility. God says, why don't you start with an attitude of humility? Instead of your argument of hostility, why don't you go in there with an attitude of humility? For the end of 1 Peter 3.15 says this, Yet with gentleness and reverence. Be ready to make a defense, yet with gentleness and reverence. In other words, speak the truth in love. I think a great example of this is, unless you've been living under a rock recently, you know that there's been much written and said about the shift in our culture and views regarding human sexuality. 
There's been a massive shift over the last few decades that seems to have been accelerated recently. And in the process, one thing that has become crystal clear is that our culture has moved so far away from the biblical idea of sexuality that we are seen at best as being antiquated and naive and at worst as bigoted and even immoral. And so what are we to do? How are we to engage such a difficult topic in a culture that is in such opposition to how we understand this issue? Well, we correct the opposition with gentleness. And this is how I think it's going to go. I honestly believe there is going to be a backlash to this sexual revolution. It is unsustainable and it is sin. And because of that, there are going to be casualties. And there are going to be people who are going to come out of that so broken. And they are going to look for answers. They're going to go looking for answers that truly only the gospel of Jesus Christ can provide. But friends, let me tell you something. They are not going to come here. And they are not going to look to Christians if we fail to do one of two things. Number one, they are not going to look to the church if we fail to stand on God's truth. Because therefore, we don't have any answers to give them. So we must stand on God's truth. But let me tell you another thing. They are not going to come here if we fail to display God's love. Because then we have no credibility for what it is we're even saying. So we as a church are going to be a place where these refugees come if we stand firm on God's truth so that we can offer answers and if we display God's love so that we give credibility to the Savior we proclaim. This is our posture towards an unbelieving world that we are often at odds with. We are not people who just go out there and lob grenades of, lob grenades of damnation and judgment. We are, as Charles Corson used to say, Chuck Corson used to say, Colson, excuse me, we are to be people against the world for the world. We are to be against the world for the world. As we pursue holiness, practice humility, and finally, as we persevere in hope. Persevere in hope. Verse 25, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Paul tells us as we pursue holiness and practice humility, we also are to persevere in hope. We persevere in hope because we recognize that God has the power to grant repentance and therefore it is possible. Because God has the power, repentance is therefore possible. And in doing so, Paul reminds us of the big picture. That our goal is not to win an argument. Our goal is not to beat someone into submission with the truth of God. Our goal is to point people to the Christ that saved us so that they might experience repentance, come to a knowledge of the truth, and be reconciled to their maker. That is the goal. It's not to embarrass them. It's not to show them how smart we are. It's to point them to Christ. And we also persevere with hope because we know that despite the trajectory of the world and our culture, in the end, God wins. And we who are with Him are heirs and share in that victory. 
Philippians 2, 10 and 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is a day coming where King Jesus is going to come in glory and in judgment. And we look forward to that day. But in the meantime, we are to be people who engage our world, our culture, those who oppose us with a pursuit of holiness that reveals Christ, a humility that resembles Christ, and a perseverance and hope that points to Christ, so that perhaps God may grant them repentance and bring them to a knowledge of the truth. Close with a quick story. John Selwyn, you may have heard of him before. He was a missionary in the South Pacific. And in college, he learned to box and he became quite a renowned boxer. He was a big man. And so there he is. He's doing ministry in the South Pacific. And one day he comes into contact with a native and he has to rebuke this native. And the native doesn't like it and the native slaps him across the face. And Selwyn, this, this mighty man, He stands there with his arms crossed, not responding, looking lovingly at this native with compassion. That native, ashamed of what has just transpired, runs off into the jungle, never to be seen. Until a few years later, after Selwyn had left, that native returned and he came forward to confess to Christ and to be baptized by Selwyn's replacement. And when asked what new name he wished to be called by, the native replied this, Call me John Selwyn, for it was he who taught me what Jesus Christ is like. May the same be said of us, for God made us who we are to show the world who he is. We are called to teach others, and we are called to show others what Jesus Christ is like. And one of the ways that we do this that we show and that we remember is we look back and commemorate what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. And that is what we celebrate when we come to the communion table, as we commemorate the death that brought us life, as we commemorate the one who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, we've talked a lot this morning about how to engage the opposition how to engage those who disagree with us. And as I was preparing this week, I couldn't help but think about how Jesus engaged the opposition. How Jesus engaged those who were his enemies. People like you and me. Romans 5, 8 through 10 says this, beautiful words. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled will we be saved by his life? It is easy for us to become obsessed with the opposition out there and lose sight of the opposition that existed in here, in each one of us. And so as we think about how God engaged us, who all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, it is humbling. As we think about how the holy God took on flesh and walked among us, as this holy God who took on flesh practiced humility, as he willingly went to the cross where he died for our sins, 
And as because of this holy God who took on flesh, we now have hope. We now can persevere in hope because we know that our Redeemer wins. I pray that if you have never received that free gift of salvation that comes by faith through the grace of God, that this morning you would come home. I pray that God, if perhaps He would grant you the repentance that would bring you to a knowledge of the truth and that you would faithfully respond to His call. As the men are going to come now forward, they're going to pass out the elements. The cup represents the blood of Jesus. The bread represents His body that was broken for us. These elements are for any of you who have come to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. I invite you to go before Him at this time and confess any sin. Praise Him for the mighty work of redemption in your life. And please hold on to the elements and we will take these together.
Well, it's certainly well with our soul. Amen? Not because of the bread that you hold, but because of what that represents. The Lamb of God who was slain for the sin of the world. Take this in remembrance of Him. And here we hold a cup. It's just a cup of grape juice, but what it represents is so much more. As Hebrews 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. So God did what only God could do. He took on flesh. He lived a perfect life. He died in our place for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of him. Join me as we close in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we woke up this morning, I was just thinking of the beauty of the sunrise the feel of the wind on our face, the sun on our bodies, the joy of fellowship and relationships, the blessing of life. God, we, we give you praise and glory and we are indebted to you for creating us and for giving us breath each and every day. And God, we know that there's a world out there that is opposed to us because it is opposed to you. And at, and at times, God, what, our, what we want to do is either run completely away from it and hide or go around hitting people with bazookas. But God, you call us to engage like you did. Personal holiness, practical humility. And as we persevere in hope, knowing that this is not our eternal home. And God, may you use each person's life in here to point people to the one who gives life and the one who came and took our place. Lord God, we love you and we thank you for this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, have a wonderful rest of your Sunday. We'll see you back next week.